we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Hi, Sam. How are you going? Going well, Hannah. How's yourself? Yeah, I've um, actually been able to use someone else's office today, which um, means my kids being in the background hopefully won't be as big an issue on this episode. Yeah, poor um, poor Ali for the last episode. Anyhow, today's episode. Yes, I'm. I'm really excited. We have the wonderful Amy Amy from Disability Culture Crew. Hello, guys. How are you? Thanks so much for having me on today. No, so much. Thank you so much for coming on board. So how about you tell us a bit about your story and how you got started here? Okay, well, my name is Amy Husband and I am the Director of Disability Culture Crew Australia. And we're um, a little company that's set up to try to kind of bridge that gap between uh, disability service providers, not everyone, and the disability community. Seems a little little hard to get your head around to start with. So let me first introduce um, my story a little more. And that's actually best done by introducing my daughter and her experience. So this is actually why I have so much skin in this game. Uh, My daughter, Ileana, would have to be one of the sweetest, most genuine, kindest children you would ever meet. She's brave and resilient and has more courage in her delicate little finger than I do have in my whole spirit. She's entirely remarkable. Um, She's also got some pretty impressive credentials to her name. So she's got a syndrome called uh, Patoki-Lupski syndrome, level three autism. She's PEDGFET which is into the J-genomum, um, and she's nil by mouth. Uh, she's got a, a, a history of chronic aspiration pneumonia. We've got ephemeral torsion in both of her legs. She's got uh, a hearing loss in both of her ears. Uh, Ileana is nonverbal with a significant intellectual disability, poor tone, gastroparesis, severe dysphagia, intractable epilepsy, um, which is just a very hard to treat generalised seizure disorder. And there's probably um, many other things we could say, but she is just the most beautiful little person. Now, she was born with Patoki-Lupski syndrome, which is a genetic condition born from a partial duplication of chromosome 17. And this happened at the first point of the first cell dividing. And I remember being told it was a rare genetic abnormality and I couldn't have done anything to prevent it. I remember I had uh, met with a genetic counsellor who had a role in meeting um, parents and carers post-diagnosis. And I remember her saying, Amy, look, I just want to reiterate that this um, isn't your fault. Now, you didn't cause this. And I remember she sort of said it like it mattered, like perhaps she'd encountered parents that felt responsible for their child's disability. 
I'm sure some of your listeners would have gone through that as well. Little Ileana also has a chronic seizure disorder, and this has been responsible, sadly, for some permanent and persistent brain injuries. Now, over the years, she's lost the ability to eat, to drink, to talk, to use her hands for sign language, and has had some permanent damage to the big muscle groups in her legs, sadly, at one stage, causing a stroke-like weakness, especially on her left side. Epilepsy, for some people like Ileana, is dangerous and unpredictable. Uh, and Ileana has had thousands of seizures over the years, maybe even more. She's had seizures from standing, resulting in head injuries and trips in ambulances. She's had seizures in her sleep, resulting in her losing her airway and developing aspiration pneumonias. And she's even had seizures in the shower. And uh, she was actually knocked unconscious recently as she fell from her shower commode during a seizure. And I remember the support worker really desperately trying to grab her to break her fall. But Ileana sadly has shampoo in her hair, making her little body unbearably slippery and unable to be caught. Uh, and I remember hearing that commotion and finding her knocked out cold on the tiles. A wretched, heartbreaking sight that little can prepare you for. Ileana was vomiting from the concussion and I tried to maintain a patent airway and clear her mouth of secretions. And I remember the support worker sort of crying, saying, I tried so hard to catch her, Amy. I'm so sorry. And it was really these times and, and the desperation that was in her voice that day that rang in my ears long after the event. And it's a pretty cruel life at times. And I'm sure there's lots of listeners out there that have experienced epilepsy like this. Uh, Ileana also doesn't eat or drink which for many people is, is a bit of a hard to commute, compute concept for, for lots of people out there. So she's fed into her bowel and she lives exclusively off a very specialised formula. And we really needed uh, to have her stomach bypassed because a lot of the time they'll feed into the stomach via a peg. If anyone out there knows about pegs, I'm sure there's lots of people that do. And Ileana needed that bypassed as um, her, her stomach would just fill with formula. And uh, then she'd, she'd vomit constantly. She's got a type of paralysis in her stomach. So the formula that she's fed doesn't move through a system. It just sort of sits there and pulls until she brings it all back again. Her, her stomach just sadly doesn't have that natural peristaltic action that pushes the contents of the stomach down. Have you worked with participants like like this one, Hannah? I've had, oh, I wouldn't say a lot because that that's not the truth, but but I have had experience where the definitely the parasolsis of the stomach muscles exists and it it's it's very difficult for even medical people to really understand it. So yeah, it's a tough one. I imagine yeah. that disability support workers out there, you know, really struggle to get their head around it too. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, and, and you know, we're all in for this is the type of information we bring in when we work with providers. We love to share our story. Eliana's also a pretty big aspiration risk. Yeah. So for anyone out there listening who doesn't know what asp aspiration is, it's when you breathe fluids or solids into your lungs and the problem being that your lungs just aren't designed for that 
Um, and the lungs do their best to try to reabsorb the contents, but mostly it just turns infective and becomes a pneumonia, which can be devastating. You probably heard those terms, aspiration pneumonia. And if it happens regularly, um, some of our disability community out there can have their lungs scarred and have long-term effects. It's a bit of a bugger. Yeah, there's definitely some high high level risk there. It, it's sort of just triggering my head and my compliant yeah. world, just thinking about the amount of risks that Eliana has. Yep the amount of workforce environment, yep. the amount of risks, secondary risks as yep. well. Yep. So I, I imagine like devising a care plan and working through with your, your support workers and do you, do you use independents or do you work, use providers? We have out? done both in the past. Currently we've got uh, an independent team. Yep. Using providers in the past can be a little bit tricky because we do need those stable rosters. And their organisations and agencies we've worked with in the past can sometimes have difficulties when staff call in sick mm-hmm. and they need to share good staff amongst high needs participants. But we re- we really are in a position where we need a solid team who are very much available at, to work the hours on their roster. So we tend to, um, we have about nine incredible women that work with us and they work a rotating fortnightly roster and we tend not to roster more than 15 or 20 hours a week to anyone over and above because we like to keep staff long term (laughs) we've got a lot of our girls have been with us for a long time um which we're super lucky yeah um as you can imagine the training process is big Mm. and the training process is um really does fall squarely in the laps of of families a lot of the time especially employing independent staff so training someone new into Ileana's service can be uh we tend to do it over six weeks uh and we do a lot of buddy shifts with uh some of our amazing long-term girls and also myself as well because conceptually it's a lot to take in the disability sector um houses some of our most vulnerable members of that community being people like Ileana. Uh, she's nonverbal as well. So uh, it poses a lot of risk and there's not necessarily that much out there to support workers in good solid training and not all, often that much within organizations as well that I've that I've found, not knocking organizations, but you know, there's not many of DC crew out there where we can bring this type of experience into staff and share it from our perspective, from the family's perspective. So we've been really, really lucky to be able to put something together to be able to do that. Yeah. And unfortunately, you're right. It is a bit of a um, a gap within the, yep. the individual training and development of, of yep. staff and employees Even- and providers as well. Yeah, look, even from the concept of like disability awareness. So even if we take out the practical manual handling skills of how do I use a sterile setup for a pedge, for example, and how do I use these pumps? The other side of it is that gap about awareness and sensitivity. Um, And I've had a lot of staff in my own home, but I've also worked within the um, sector myself in management. And there's you know, there's times where I've actually felt like as a family, as a carer, as a parent of a person with profound and complex disabilities, um, 
there's not many not many people out there that speak my language and I'm not alone there's a there's a lot of people in the disability community that might say the same thing and that's very much what we built into these seminars the breaking barriers seminars was conversations about you know welcome into my world and um, we can chat about you learning my language rather than the sector sort of dictating on how we deliver services. I really wanted to be able to have that conversation in reverse to say, hey, this is actually what it's been like for us for a lot of years. And what we've found is those conversations are just so effective. You know, there's so many incredible organisations and agencies and providers and workers out there and once they grab hold of that information, that's really the stuff that's been missing. You know, my experiences as a, as a parent and carer have really taught me that there is a genuine and broad disparity between the disability community and service providers. I've seen it. I've been on the other end of it. I've had to work within it. And for me, I'd hedge some bets on solving some of the problems by bringing in some more experience into the industry, like real and raw lived experience and they really need a, a presence within this industry and that's what we're trying to do and we're on there's only one of us so there's only one DC crew um, but that's what we're trying to do because I think that's going to really be super helpful. I love your way of presenting it as storytelling and I think that gets a lot further with people rather than saying do this, don't do that and understanding what is behind the reason that sometimes, you know, for brevity's sake, we do say don't do this, do do this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it. I also wanted to touch on what you said about education because I think even people who have done some TAFE, I feel like a lot of the time they pop out the other side And there's some even really basic things that they've missed, like confidentiality. And that really annoys me. It's like, well, you've got this piece of paper, but you can't even do something as simple as confidentiality. Yeah. Look, I agree because there's a false sense of security because, and it's not the worker's fault. They go in, they do some uh, education and training, and they get certified as, as having that. But at the end of the day, that education and training is probably a little bit outdated. And I would suggest that the disability community within that training is profoundly underrepresented as a rule. And, and, you know, contentious as that statement might be, I actually think when a minority of people are not appropriately represented, neither are they needs. You know, that's a fact. And I think that's probably what we're seeing. And Look, I think that that concept of storytelling is the way that people learn. And um, I, as a culture, we've been storytelling for thousands of years. That's how we learn is we evoke an emotion and an understanding and an empathy about each other's experiences. And I think when you try to put that in a test, it doesn't, it doesn't translate. Um, DC crew only storytells through our seminars and what we've seen is we get people crying we get people laughing and it's not always something that you is tangible we can say always tick all these boxes they've learned all of these things but they walk out with a closer connection to the community that they're trying to serve 
we're very much about just giving people like my daughter the opportunity to have her experience heard and give her the opportunity to speak up about her experiences about what has worked and what hasn't worked. I've come from a nursing background as well. And I've been lucky enough to do lots of on the ground work from support work to support coordination, working within office and admin, doing case management even. I worked um, my way up to senior management, providing oversight to a large volume of support workers, coordination of support, plan managements, and a large volume of NDIS participants. And I kind of feel like it was just such a beautiful experience because I got to see where some of the ground level issues are. And I feel like I got lucky enough to get a, a pretty good idea on how to solve or combat some of those problems. And I think it just comes down to the simple concept of awareness and how do we build that awareness amongst people. And I, I think it just really does come down to storytelling and giving people the opportunity to have conversations as well. Uh, so we're really, we're really proud about, about that. I kind of feel like like disability awareness and sensitivity is like a way of conducting business. And for us, it's like defined as an understanding of or an appreciation of something. It can it can be seen as a realisation of an existence or bringing your attention to something or an alertness of something. And it's also, you know, for me, it's also the opposite of unaware, which is being unconcerned or uninformed, being ignorant, oblivious, and negligent and all of those things by proxy. And I imagine it's a way of being and a way of conducting business too. And look, during the seminars, I say, hey, everyone, quick question. Is this what we see when we're out and about in town, when we work with persons with disabilities? And, and in the seminars, I ask everyone in their room to put their hand up, put your hand up. And they kind of look around and say, what? I say, put your hand up in the air. And then I tell them to keep their hand up and, and keep your hand up if you have participants that ever get stared at or misunderstood. And then I tell them to look around at all the hands in the air and it's often a very surprising moment. Um, can I give you an example of something that happened uh, with my daughter just a few weeks ago? And it's a demonstration of disability unawareness and it's a demonstration of um, what we're trying to combat. So as I said earlier, Ileana is an epileptic and she has seizures often. And sometimes it can happen when we're out and about, and this is exactly what happened on this day. I'd taken Ileana and some of the DC crew after an event, and we went to get sushi. Even though Ileana doesn't eat, we went to get some takeaway. And uh, we'd all sort of walked into the front of the restaurant um, when Ileana stopped dead in her tracks and she fell forward into me, um, collapsed and had a seizure. Um, and one of the DC crew and myself pulled her away from the from the doorway onto the bare concrete. Um, and the restaurant was full of staff and customers and we tried uh, to keep Ileana safe and she was choking, sadly, and she vomited a number of times trying to clear the secretions out from her airway. And in all honesty, I might be a nurse, but I do struggle um, at times to keep her safe. You know, the most interesting thing that happened on that day is no one came to help not a single soul, oh, you know, and the story, gosh, the story gosh. just gets worse guys, because there was customers wanting to enter the restaurant and they stepped over us. Oh Lord. Oh my uh, goodness. Pretend, pretending not to notice. And it was not once, it was not twice, 
but multiple different groups of people passed us by pretending not to notice. And uh, these are really hard experiences to have. And I'm proud that as director of DC Crew that I have them and I want to stop the disability community from having them. Look, afterwards, I remember just like apologising to my little girl, Ileana. She doesn't understand that. But I sort of, this was only weeks ago, I said to her that I'm going to do everything I possibly can to create disability awareness because I just don't think it's something that we see routinely. Um, and I do like to tell that story, you know, for the upcoming seminars, we're definitely going to write that one in because I think that's a really powerful one. And I imagine if you give listeners the opportunity to comment and say they've had a similar story, you might get a few comments on there because it's yeah. just everywhere. Yeah, I can think of quite a few examples off the top of my head and I'm yeah. sure Hannah's got a longer list than me. Yeah, yeah. This is really the drive that I have to normalise disability. And um, that's part of the DC Crew apparel line. So we've got a line of apparel streetwear and it's just disability-specific sloganing where we've just, uh, you know, created a couple of lines where we have uh, conversational starters. One of them is called, uh, on the front or on the back. It's a big picture of slimy green writing that says disaware with eyeballs everywhere. And it's designed to be conversational starters about you know, oh, what's that shirt mean? We've got another good one um, that's I have a voice too. And that's specifically trying to hone in on those messages for the disability community. Like talk to me, don't talk to my worker, talk to me. That, and then again, that one the gets me the most. It It is so yeah. frustrating yeah. Yeah. when people try to talk to me or the support worker and that's why, like, for me as the support coordinator, even if the participant themselves may not understand what I'm saying, I usually still mm -hmm. direct my questions at them, even if mm -hmm. their parents are going to answer. And mm -hmm. I look at the participant even while mum or dad is answering me and I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, and, and that's what you think too. Yep, all right. You know, because I cannot stand it. The idea of looking to the support worker as if they know the person's mind, that's just not how it works. Yeah. And even it's even within our own industry, there's a whole group of people within our own industry that don't understand that. And and I just think it simply comes back to that same issue that I bash on on and on about which is um there's a there's a real underrepresentation and that's what DC Cruise is trying to do we're trying to say actually let's have this conversation perhaps for the first time so when I take Ileana anywhere I want people to direct the question to Ileana and I can I answer for her and I can be her voice because I know her well enough because she's got a voice. She's got a mind. She's got a soul. She's got thoughts. It's just in this lifetime, she's got barriers to communicate those for whatever reason. She used to talk, not sort of in a way that we understand, but some had some brain injuries from seizures that have taken that from her. But she's got a desperate desire for communication 
and being understood and being heard. And she demonstrates that this is, you know, I will probably touch uh, nerves as well, but Ileana demonstrates when that doesn't happen for her by being behavioural. And you guys have probably worked with participants that get labelled as behavioural, which I, I find a little sad because I'd like to, I'd like to teach the industry that sometimes those terms are okay, but sometimes they need to be swapped out for unheard or misunderstood or frustrated by proxy. And we've got some, we actually do demonstrations with staff and play some games specifically about the concept of communication and being nonverbal and and we really get staff involved because this is a big one. Communication within the disability community is a big one. Uh, we don't probably talk about it enough and, and hopefully we can get to a point where it's like normalised, where persons um, who are nonverbal for whatever reason are not seen as being bereft of mind. Uh, and communication difficulties. I, I mean, I had a profoundly impactful stutter in my youth, profoundly impactful, and I've written that through my seminars, and I still I still suffer to this day. And so that was a great exercise for me growing up as to what works and what doesn't work, and then that translates directly into our service industry because there's lots of persons out there with loads of different barriers to communication. But it doesn't mean that we don't need to be in a constant place of trying to find out what works. The path of least resistance is what we call it. I love that. I use that path of least resistance quite a lot. <laughs> Let's just get it done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, because I think it exists for just about everyone. I'm a big one in throwing out that term behavioural mm. and turning the finger that gets pointed at our participants back to the people involved in their care. And I've said to workers before, um, both in my own home and in a professional sense, that, hey, let's pause that rhetoric about someone being behavioural and let's talk about where we're at because I think maybe we've got a bigger role here than we're considering because uh, I think communication is just so misunderstood and some of the games we do in the seminars points this out and yes they're fun and they get dressed up and they have a laugh but we really hone in the message that there's far more to it and it's your job to be a master communicator within the sector and I'm sorry that it wasn't a prerequisite to get the job and I'm sorry that no one might have spoken about it yet but we're talking about it now yeah um, so we do some exercises that I, I, I really give them a hard time in that we've got a 62 page work booklet that we put into this seminar and I drive them and get them filling things out and they work hard. But I think it's all about the end goal, which is incredible service delivery. And I don't believe too much in in fancy tools and and things like that I believe in connection with your customer and I think it's that simple if your your ground level working staff have a superior connection to their customer they can give superior service and it's a word by mouth industry and the participants will come to you that's what I've said the whole way along and that's really what we see 
connection is what everybody wants. And I think there might be needing conversation about, well, actually, guys, disability community, hands up if you feel adequately connected to by service providers. You know, um, that would be a great question to ask because I I think that the community might be saying, hey, I, I feel misunderstood at these times or I've never been given the opportunity to share what it's like to have workers in my home 12 hours a day and what works for me and what doesn't work for me and simple bits and pieces. Um, and we talk about uh, we've got two seminars. The second one talks a bit more in depth about what it's like to have service providers in your home and what it's like to have multiple different workers so rostered on three or four hour shifts three or four different staff members a day and actually what that's like and where they go wrong and where they get it right and look we're not out necessarily to make service providers super popular or get them more work we're out to get the disability community services that are a bit more sensitive and a bit more disability aware and a bit more tailored to what they're after. Yeah, well, it definitely goes towards like your requirements for continual development. Is as we said earlier in the episode, it skills development or upskilling in like sort of these more niche areas mm. is very either ad hoc or based on a participant need. Mm. Mm. So if there's not if a participant has a certain need, that's when the tra- agency will go start looking for that yeah. training rather than them already looking at that, how do they keep on going on with their annual tra- training, what sort of in- inclusivity, what sort of disability rights we're looking at. And these are, this is what's sort of been lacking over the last 10 years uh, as part of it. And it's it's a very a hot topic at the moment, especially with, with, with we've got the DRC out, the NDIS review uh, came out the other week. And, and I just want, sort of wanted to see what, uh, what your thoughts were, because you've sort of spoken around the need for high quality staff. There's two points. One, the, the Disability Royal Commission has a, a point in there for service providers, uh, for service provision, where it's recommending support workers have a, a registered body to sort of fall on, kind of like APRA, so the doctor's sort of nurse's sort of model. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sort of proposing for a model for the disability support uh, support workers. On the other side is the, the NDIS review. It's recommending that everyone be registered so it helps more oversight and that sort of thing. I'm just sort of wondering where you kind of stand on both those two points. If you're for in favour of both, do you like either model or do you, do you sort of not want either to come into play? Look, I think along the lines of if there's more persons with explicit experiencing disability sitting at the top of the food chain and sitting in decision-making roles, that's probably where we need to start first off because I think some of those models that they're proposing is going to mean that they can blame and be accountable, but it's not going to change the morality or the the service provision on the ground just because someone's got a stamp on a piece of paper. How can any authority, yeah, make decisions that irreparably affect the lives of persons with disability accurately if they're not attached to the community that they are deciding for. Um, 100%. And the the Disability Royal Commission has has acknowledged that to to an extent. Um, So it does recommend more 
uh, people with a disability in those positions of gov- governance, um, which I agree with 100%. It, it's definitely needed Look, for more in that executive level uh, because there's not enough people in that level that have a a view of the disability community. I I also want to speak on behalf of your complex and profound community. Like my daughter, she's not in a position to get a job to be able to advocate for herself. So I think there's so much value in persons like myself, which is your carers, advocates, families. I just don't think we can actually do too much until we did like really kind of tear down some of the old and make way for the new. Um, Otherwise, you're just building on top of the same broken foundation. Um, And it really bleeds into another issue that I'm super passionate about, which is that persons with disability have a legacy that we're still not talking about. You know, they're a community that really has uh, their own unique history. And the disability community, in actual fact, has suffered significantly with poor treatment in the past and still do right now in 2023. I mean, Four Corners tried to blow the lid off it and still no one was talking about it. And I take it seriously because it's actually my daughter's legacy. And, you know, it's a legacy where, like, her disability family have been labelled as faulty and defective and something we need to fix or repair but disability is perfect in so many ways because it's natural and normal and persons like my daughter have been born that way. And I'm sure your listeners will know what I'm talking about. You know, I've heard incredible stories like this um, with my own ears and I've heard families talk about having their disabled family members segregated from society and exiled and discarded, you know, and many of their stories haven't seen the light of day and remain untold. And that legacy is one we need to blow up because it's very much preserved and very much still intact by an unexamined past. And again, I say I truly do not believe we can make headway to a progressive future without first addressing their past. And I think like I, I talk a little bit about this within the seminars because I think if anybody works within the industry, they need to know who their customer is and not everyone in the under the NDIS now was brought up under the NDIS. So there was a lot of people like my daughter that have been brought up under a system that really treated them like she should be happy to get any help at all. And I guess that has kind of you know, created a bit of mistrust in the industry. I think, you know, the solutions are are vast and really hard to fit into these style of conversations. And I think the issues here really highlight a need for change that runs much deeper than we realise. And I think these conversations are so profoundly important because we're just sort of getting to the tip of the iceberg, very much so. Yeah. 100%. And there needs to be a lot more of these conversations happening. Yeah. Especially if we're able to see any any sort of realisation of both any sort of DRC recommendations or review. Because there's a lot lot of, as you said, historical, systemic, entrenched ways of working and thinking and old school mentality that that are are real barriers for any real change. And until those sort of get dropped or annihilated 
and we're still going to be having this conversation for an unfortunate little while to go. But it's, it is wonderful to see that we've got people like yourself um, and those other advocates out, out and uh, disability advocates out there that are, are working towards recognizing yeah. these within mainstream settings, working harder to get better expectations out of providers as well within the industry. So, yeah. What I like to nail in on is that the abuse that Four Corners exposed is not historic, it's current. Um, and I feel just, I get really frustrated that there's a lot of conversation around the NDIS by persons, you know, who don't necessarily understand that sort of really very detailed parameters of what they're talking about. And, you know, we can't afford to allow that current practice of abuse at Four Corners blew up to continue. You know, someone needs to say something. And I really hope if your listeners haven't already watched that episode of Four Corners, it's called Careless. I really hope they do because it details a little bit of the stuff that we're talking about here. Um, 100%. The other bit that I find very distressing that not only is it not historic, but it's also not unusual. And this yeah. is the other thing that I think people, are, other piece of the puzzle that I think people are missing, that this isn't unusual and some of us see it more often than others, but absolutely people in under the NDIS, under registered providers, non-registered providers, it doesn't matter, they are being hurt by the system, by people doing things that are against the law, like restraining them or hurting them like you see in that Four Corners episode. Yeah. Um, the thing is, is that, like, you know, when you – I'm trying to think of a great analogy of – it's like a, a smell that you're so used to that you don't notice anymore. This is what we're seeing it's um, and I use the term accepted sector abuse, and I, I cop a I cop a little bit. I'm not going to lie, I do cop a little bit because I throw some of this stuff around, and people like to blow the NDIS up as like, oh, it's amazing, and we go out on horse rides, and you know, we we do all these amazing things. It's like, yeah, okay, guys, it's happening, but if you want to deliver incredible service to the disability community, let's let's work out what's actually happening. Yeah. And you, a lot of the times it's it's accepted because they don't notice it anymore. It's not because persons who are working within the industry are nasty or whatever. It's just that that's just the way we've always done it and that's the way we always do it and we don't notice that it's not right and we're not looking and we're not talking about it. So the more people that can kind of come out and say, hey, let's um let's have a conversation. And, you know, I'm lucky enough because my team at DC Crew, we're able to have these conversations and we create this sort of powerful, really positive stir wherever we go and it's a really beautiful thing. You know, like for me, the seminars were written about one of the hardest journeys of my life and they're all about raising a person with complex and profound disabilities and how the, the industry can better connect to us. And in all honesty, like, this journey that I've been on with my daughter could have like genuinely taken me out of the game over and over. That's a fact. It's been brutal to watch her suffer. And I can't tell you guys the amount of times that I've sat in corridors at hospitals. 
I can't tell you the endless prayers that I've said for her. I can't tell you how hard it's been to have to fight for her everywhere we go. And I can't tell you enough. It just would have been easier for me to quit and stay at home with her. There's a bit of an unfair nature to what I've experienced with her. And that's a fact. You know, a DC crew really comes from a place of vulnerability. Um, and what I've learned is that vulnerability is the most effective place to teach from. And we just want to open conversation about disability and dispel some mistruths um, for persons like my daughter and for as many members of the disability community out there we can have some positive impact on. Yeah, absolutely. I was listening to your podcast and I noticed a story about being in a hospital setting. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure, yeah. Um, these are stories that we use within our seminars because they give really massive clues to suggest that the concept of disability awareness is something that not many people, even what we would consider experts in our industry, possess at this stage. So um, picture this, yeah, a massive children's hospital in a major capital city one that Ileana had been attending for 17 years. Look, we'd all say that they'd have to be experts in good care and somewhat experts in disability, yeah? Yeah. Now, Ileana and I had travelled with a support worker and we were admitted um, for an overnight sleep study and the staff had warned me that I should probably run up the street and get something to eat as it was going to be closing up soon. Ileana's long-term support worker was with her at the time, so I ran up the street. Now, um, on my return, I walked past the doorway to Ileana's room, peering in, and I saw there she was. She was sobbing and she had lots of tape on her face and nasal prongs. Um, and I know her well enough to know that she looked defeated and broken and covered in vomit. And the support worker sort of rushed to me at the door and she was crying herself. Amy, she said. Amy, I told them to stop. Same old fucking story. Now, I didn't enter the room. Instead, I walked straight to the nurse's station. I put my hand up as I popped my head in the door. Uh, excuse me, excuse me, ladies. Uh, can someone just tell me what happened to my daughter? Oh, oh, nothing, darling. We just put the monitoring on. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Um, but why is she so upset? Oh, well, she didn't like it, but she has to have it on, the nurse said. It's for an overnight sleep study. Oh, I replied. I totally understand that she needs the monitoring on. That's no problem at all. But can you just explain to me why she's sobbing, covered in vomit? Actually, come on, guys, come and have a look at her and explain to me how this happened. Now, the nurse followed me back down the hallway I've been doing this for 30 years, she said. I know what I'm doing and I probably don't need to really explain myself to you, she snarled a little at me. And as we walked into the room, Ileana started to cry a little more, obviously a bit frightened. So I settled her down and pulled the nasal prongs and tapes off her face. Oh, she needs that, the nurse said, lurching forward, trying to stop me. I stepped in front of her. I think you need consent to touch a patient, don't you? And she's clearly saying no. Well, I've been doing this for 30 years, the nurse said, and I know what I'm doing, she snapped at me. So I turned around 
in true Amy style and I hit the emergency buzzer because I was tired of it. And within seconds, the room filled with staff, including the professor of the unit. Oh, sorry, I said with a smile on my face. Everyone can go except for the professor. Sorry about that. Geez, that got your attention, I joked, knowing full well it wasn't funny. I'm a nurse and I know you don't do those type of things. But for me, I wasn't trying to be funny. I was trying to be impactful because I'm trying to create a change. So I turned around to the support worker. We had the nurse there and the professor in the room and I asked the support worker to explain what happened to Ileana, which she did. She explained that the nursing staff had tried to put the monitoring on Ileana, who had adamantly refused. Ileana was saying no. It wasn't a typical no, though, because she's nonverbal. She did what she could to say no, which was to wriggle and scream and become hysterical. And the support worker went on to explain that she told the staff to stop and told them to wait for me to get back. But in response to this, the nursing staff told her that they knew what they were doing and that they've been doing this for 30 years and went and got more nursing staff. They proceeded to pin Ileana down, who was kicking and screaming, and applied the tape to her face against her will. Ileana screaming and also started to vomit from the stress, and they proceeded anyway. Ileana, in her own mind, felt sure that she'd been attacked unfairly. She was probably very unsure what she'd done to deserve it as well. And she was probably very unsure what was going to happen next and if it was going to happen again. And she probably felt like her feelings and her actions to say no were meaningless. I looked at the professor and I said, is this how you treat people? Well, she needs the monitoring on, he said. But don't you need consent to touch a patient? We've been doing this a long time, he con continued and my staff know what they're doing. But you didn't answer my question, I said. Don't you need consent to touch a patient? She's not scheduled or under a treatment order. This is a voluntary admission. Can you please answer the question? Don't you need consent to touch a patient? Oh, we've been doing this a long time, Amy, he said again. What, 30 years? I snapped back. Yes, Amy, and we have so much experience with disabled kids. Ileana is not the first. We care about our patients. We have their best interest at heart, he said, pointing to a person-centred care poster on the wall. We've been doing this a long time. What, doing this, I said, pointing to Ileana, because without consent, it's assault, and that's a fact, disability or not. And what is worse is that you keep saying you've been doing this for 30 years. So how many more children have been treated like this? Ileana is nonverbal. She is not bereft of mind or will, and you would never be able to hold another person down against their will like this. She told you in her own way that you don't have consent to touch her and you did it anyway. Explain that. And they couldn't. So I did. I explained that they didn't understand disability and perhaps they haven't 
outdated old belief that being nonverbal means you don't have a mind. And then I explain that persons with disability have the same rights as every other person on this planet. And then I explain that disability awareness and understanding is the most protective agent for everyone and that the professor should invest in that and less in the old outdated concepts of person-centred care because they obviously don't work. And you know what? I think that there are a lot of people in the disability community that have had experiences like this, especially our participants who are nonverbal. And I really wonder if this treatment is something that some of your listeners or some of uh, the people that your listeners care for have encountered too. Oh, it's something that like I've, I've encountered in hospital. I, when my mum was really sick, I had to call Ryan's rule. And I was having a bit of a manic crisis at the same time. Mm. And, well, a manic episode. Uh, and so I'm trying to call through to the, um, for those that don't know, Ryan's rule in Queensland yep. is a rule that we yes. can um, sort of call and then go through to a secondary external health mm-hmm. person to, for an assessment. Anyway, so I get through to uh, one of the senior medical staff who categorically just starts on the the defensive, putting me down and and putting me in a very uncomfortable position to try and advocate for my mum, who was clearly not getting the support she needed as well. Mm -hmm. So not only weren't they listening to my mum, I had an executive going after me as well. Yep, yep, 100%. The medical industry is not a disability model. We know that. We know that. That concept of disability awareness and sensitivity is not limited to service providers. It should be pushed through. Like DC crew really wants to hit hospitals. We want to hit allied health. We want to, we feel that these stories and you know, this type of stuff needs to go Australia-wide throughout lots of different sectors because it's just such a consistent problem. You know, these are just a few stories I've told you um, from the few months alone, and I have been knocking around for 17 years. So that's 17 years worth of my own stories with Ileana. I can't imagine how many more other families are out there. So I just think, you know, this is great. Let's bust it open. You know, I think it's really important because conceptually some of these models are a it probably outdated. We really need, we really need like honest to God, we need a reshuffle and we need a reconfigure. Um, and how we do that, look, I don't know. I'm doing it in the only way I can. Yeah. And you can really see the passion and energy that you've been putting into it and where you're getting the disability culture crew to so far. Um, uh, how you're managing the sports with Ileana and everything is just an testament to your passion, the capabilities and and your mindset as well. Yeah, thank you. It's really at the end of the day that Ileana is not alone. There's so many persons out there that are misunderstood. And I kind of feel like, like my own history, I've been unheard and misunderstood and I don't want anyone else on this planet to feel like that. Um, and if it just takes me a little while of bashing on and I try to get on radio stations and we try, um, we hit up all sorts of networking events and we have conversations where perhaps we start off on the back foot 
because providers don't necessarily want to address that gap and they don't want to be seen as not having a good understanding of the disability community. But we always just like to say at the end of the day, it's it's actually, guys, it's what you don't know that does the most damage. And the best way we can approach this is to be the best learners we can possibly be in a constant state of learning and leave that you know, the concept of being a master, being a master of service delivery and the biggest in the industry and we have the most participants, leave all of that at the wayside and let's be like categorically the best learners we can possibly be. And that there is a culture and that there is what we try to bring in. So, you know, that's a little bit about us. (laughs) I, I really, really appreciate you sharing your story with us and I really hope that people providers hit you up and and ask for your training now that they've heard a bit more about it yeah look I think it's only a matter of time because it is actually a community whilst we say they're profoundly underrepresented it is actually a community that are getting their feet and they're they're getting their voice and they're walking away from providers that no longer serve them And I think that it's only a matter of time before those providers start asking questions because they've only got so many answers when you're not intimately connected to a community or your customer, you can only answer so many questions. So they will get to a point where they're going to start saying, gosh, maybe I don't have it right. Maybe the picture we've got here is not right because we're not, you know, there's I always talk about a concept of staff and participant retention. And I'll say that to um, heads of organisations and you see their eyes like light up because they they tend to be some of the, the biggest issues that they have. And when we talk about, oh, how can we uh, reduce some of those problems? And it comes down to happy participants and happy staff. And how do we do that? We bridge that gap. And um, it's having these hard conversations. It's being a learner. It's dropping that title of being a a master service provider and going back to bring in mobs like us to um, do some storytelling. Tell, let me tell you where you get it wrong and then you can get it right. But if you're sitting there in in that place of, oh, I get it right all the time and I do this and we're so great, you're never going to fix the problem. So the problems are there. We know they're there. Otherwise participants won't be like we all know they, you know, they, they can hop at times from provider to provider because they want to be connected, they want to be heard, they want to be understood. So fingers crossed, <laughs> we'll just keep doing it. We keep going to events, we keep telling stories, we keep pointing out where some of the problems are in an attempt basically for the disability community to have disability normalised and have their needs normalised and have what it's like to be a person with disability what that's like and just have that normalised. Take the guesswork out of it. Yeah, it's so cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I we would... usually ask at the end of each, each episode, in your ideal, what would the NDIS look like to you? And I kind of feel this whole episode has <laughs> answered that question. Oh, look, I was going to say that I probably, I'm happy to answer that, that, but I will probably just say what I've already said. Um, <laughs> Um, but no, I think, and we love your advocacy about it. So oh, we, thank you. Yeah. Um, look, I do like to say a few things, right? 
that there's a thread that runs throughout the whole work that DC Crew does, especially some of the seminars. So we bring the seminars into agencies, organisations, and we talk to their support workers, office admin, and, you know, we try to get the execs and management involved as well. But we'd like to say that the thread running through these seminars is you as the sector. Your job is one of real value in this world and you are so important. It's a fact. You guys bring hope and meaning and freedom to so many lives and you guys change lives. You're everything to people like my daughter and that is something I will forever be grateful for. And it's an absolute pleasure for me to be able to employ, um, to be able to empower whoever I talk to with um, some of these insights that we bring to help um, the industry be the best versions of themselves both professionally and also personally, because the stuff you learn changes how you see yourself in the world as well. So that's, it's really important that as far as I'm concerned, staff get a pat on the back because they're doing an incredible job with an incredible community. Um, But your listeners can check us out. We've got a website where dccrewwas.com uh, there is some social media stuff. It tends to be under my name, Amy Husband. The apparel line, if you want to support just opening some conversation, it's it's purely an exercise in conversation starting and representing the disability community. It's certainly not something that we we make money from, but that is on the website. And I think these guys are going to put the links up for you. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll put all the, the the Disability Culture Crew website as well as the social links in the uh, show notes. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for being on this episode and thank you to our listeners for listening. Yeah, thanks for having us, guys, and thank you for being part of a movement that allows my daughter's story to be heard. It's really, really special to us uh, and she does come to the, some of those events so keep your eyes open for her. She is extremely adorable. Yeah, and thank you so much for sharing that, sharing your stories. It's, it's, it was wonderful here. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.